Welcome back. What are we looking at today? Today we are going to go into a little detail and look at the political structures of Cologne, the 12th century. Almost simply put, who owns the city? That and much more right after the intro. Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But up until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a quite a microcosm of European history. In this podcast you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until the present time. Who owns the city? In the 12th century and also for the coming 13th century, this is the question that was to be asked within Cologne. And hardly let one of the involved ones be satisfied. Here I would like to give you an outlook and an overview for the 12th century. Here much manifests itself that was to shape the city politically for the following centuries. Institutions, associations, offices and so on. A warning beforehand. The exact state of the political system in the 12th century is difficult to determine with the available historical sources. Much of the beginnings lie in the dark. The exact origins of offices or institutions are therefore unclear. And then suddenly they appear in the historical sources as a matter of course from a certain point in time as if they had always been there simply because corresponding historical evidence only begins to appear after a certain point in time. But at the same time, it is clear that some structures must have existed long before they appear in the historical sources that have come down to us and are still available. But now in the 12th century, we find a really elaborate and closely interconnected political system in the city. Of course, this did not come suddenly overnight, and was a result of a long development, but the exact course of which remains unknown to us. What is certain is that we have had a long process of institutional development. The political constitution of the city was never set in stone for long. Who had what to say and how was subject to constant change. Often, even clear-cut assignments of authority were not always clearly recognizable. Side-by-side -side competition between institutions or actors is not uncommon. We already had a prominent example in the last episode. Who may allow whom to enter the city? The archbishop as the supreme ruler of the city, or the city population itself with its wealthy inhabitants as the decision-makers. The other difficulty is the German language. Many offices have names that are in, I don't know what exactly kind of German is, if it's Old High German or what else, but it is Old German. Words that you cannot really translate into English. Therefore, I made up translations for all these titles and offices. So if you ever have studied Cologne's history, you might hear another translation for that office, like the one for the, for the institution of the Schöffen. What Schäffen are, you will find out later. Some might translate them as jurors. I translated them as magistrates. So, that's just as a quick warning to you guys. But let's begin with uh, the obvious. 
But let's start with the obvious, the Archbishop, after a short break. Hey, I just looked into my statistics and I've seen that many of you guys are not really subscribed to this podcast. You may listen to every single episode, maybe you search for it uh, regularly, but why don't you just subscribe to this podcast? It would help a lot and would push this podcast in the algorithms of the podcast platforms way to the top. Thank you, and let's continue now. Despite all the developments that we have dealt with in the last episodes throughout the 12th century, without any question, there's still only one who is in charge of the city. The acting Archbishop of Cologne. This is not even shaken by the people of Cologne in their striving for more political participation. The people of Cologne just want to have their say and be respected. No one is pursuing a revolution or the overthrow of the archbishop as a ruler of the city in the 12th century. The archbishop drew his power from the two highest political and spiritual authorities of his time, the emperor, the ruler of the empire, and the pope, the head of the church. Thus, the archbishop had a very solid political mandate. In addition to the spiritual authority, the archbishop possessed further rights and powers as the supreme lord of the city, which we already know from early episodes like he was allowed to tax trade, to levy fees for markets, to organize markets independently, and, for example, to mint his own coins. However, the main pillar of the archbishop's power within the city was his function of a secular high judge, that is, to be allowed to pass death sentences even without consulting the emperor before. This really ensured that despite all tendencies and recent events, he, the Archbishop of Cologne, remained the most powerful figure in this complicated system of power balance in the city. Only the Archbishop, as the highest secular judge, was in a position to judge cases involving murder, sexual offenses, assault, robbery and arson. This was accompanied by another major task, to be the judge about lawsuits regarding uh, unfree people. What does that really mean? It's hard for me to translate that word, Hörigkeitsklagen, it is in German. I could not really find an English translation for that. Let me explain that. What is this? Well, let's look at from a society perspective. For the most part, the people of Cologne, and especially everywhere in medieval Europe, the people were not completely free. Almost everyone was in a certain sense unfree, even a duke or bishop. A duke still had a king, and the bishop still had a pope above him. These degrees of bondage were nothing new in the Middle Ages. This was already the case in antiquity, and why should it be different in the Middle Ages? So people in that time usually had some degree of bondage to someone. Sometimes, this sounds worse than it sounds for our modern ears. A ministerial, for example, a servant in the service of the archbishop, was indeed unfree and legally bound to his lord, the archbishop. But because of the privileges and income that came along with it being a ministerial, he was able to live a materially good life with a stone house in a good location in the center of the city and um, having a high social position. 
A free farmer, on the other hand, had several bad harvests in a row, sometimes directly had death as a guest in his house, or at least uh, had his own economic ruin coming up. But due to this fact, the decision about complaints regarding the lords of the escaped unfree people to Cologne or not fulfilled services and payments lay with just that high court and the archbishop as its chairman. I don't know if it's a saying in English, but in German there's this saying, city air makes you free. That's a common misconception about the Middle Ages. And as crazy as that may sound, most people didn't want to be free either. The term freedom or being free did not have a positive connotation here. For freedom in this case meant that one no longer enjoyed protection by somebody above him. However, those who were in bondage or even unfree had a master over them, yes, indeed, has some downsides as well, but someone who had sworn to protect them in case of need. Unfree people, in fact, have a reciprocal relationship with their lord. That's a hard word to pronounce for me, sorry. The benefit may have been greater for the lord than for the unfree subject, but, but as I said, the lord also had obligations to his subjects as well. And that, dear listener, is the important difference to antiquity, where a slave had nothing at all of it to belong to a master who was allowed to treat him like an object. The high court jurisdiction was thus a powerful instrument of the archbishop as a secular ruler in the exercise of his city rule. This extended over the entire city, as well as the suburbs in front of the city, which was to be additionally incorporated in 1106 and then again in 1180. That this high court covered the entire city I mention not by chance, because other courts and institutions in Cologne were quite geographically clearly limited in their jurisdiction and not responsible for the entire city area. But more about that in a moment. We had already discussed it in an earlier episode. How can it be that an archbishop presides over the high court that can sometimes execute death sentences? Surely an ordained priest must not see blood. For this, but also for the reason that the Archbishop of Cologne is often not present in the city as a prince of the empire and as archbishop over the large church province of Cologne, there was the office of the so-called Burggraf. It's the city count. Let's get to him after a short break and a sip of water for my dry throat. We already talked about the Burggraf in an earlier episode, therefore only a small refresher of our knowledge. The Burggraf came from the high nobility and held the high court in Cologne on behalf of the archbishop. We can assume that still at the beginning of the 11th century, the archbishop could freely dispose of whom he entrusted with this office of being the Burggraf. From the year 1166, however, the office of Burggraf of Cologne is assigned as a hereditary fief. What does this mean? The office of Burggraf is always passed on within a single family, automatically. In this case, the Lords of Arenberg. A high noble family from the Eifel region, south-southwest from Cologne, with low mountain ranges, and they had numerous possessions on the Aar River and in the Eifel. They were to hold the office of the Cologne Burggraf for about 100 years, 
Only in 1279 did this noble family sell the office back to the Archbishop of Cologne. The origin of the High Court itself lies in Frankish times, when Cologne, as part of the Kölngau, the district of Cologne, was in a royal district presided over by a count appointed by the king. In the middle of the 10th century, however, the city of Cologne had been detached from this Gau as a legal district, and since then, the archbishops, as also temporal rulers, were directly responsible for it. Here too, the friendly reminder, by Burg, I don't just mean castle in this period, it was not only a classic castle on a hill with a wall and a keep, rather, the German word for Burg was considered to be the name of a fortified um, settlement. Many cities in Germany, but also in other parts of Europe, still carry the suffix Burg as a part of the word, like Hamburg, Oldenburg, or also Edinburgh. Thus, the Burggraf acted in Cologne as a judge, pronounced sentences, and supervised judicial duels. Yes, that also existed. For this, there was directly adjacent to the cathedral courtyard a separate duel place for. But the Burggraf also served as a military leader for the archbishop, but he also served as a military leader for the archbishop and even had the powerful political tool in his hand that he could even pronounce the ban against criminals. Anyone who was banned was excluded from society. Conversely, everyone was required to catch the outlaw and bring him before the competent judge. The trials of this high court took place in the cathedral courtyard, today's Roncalliplatz, or directly in the neighboring archbishop's palace when the archbishop himself presided. It met only three times a year on a Monday, the first Monday after January 6th, which was the Feast of Epiphany, the Monday after Easter, and the Monday after June 24th, when the Feast of St. John was celebrated. Other buildings that served the purpose of the High Court were the so-called Hacht, the prison, and the so-called Kax, the pillory, where people suffered punishments of honor. That is, when you were publicly humiliated by being chained there for a few hours exposed to the ridicule and scorn of the public. If someone was sentenced to death by a verdict of the High Court by the Burggraf, he was not executed in the middle of the marketplace, as in every cliché movie about the Middle Ages. The condemned to death was led out of the prison, called Hart, with his back, the punished, was pushed against the so-called blue stone in front of the courthouse. Don't ask me why, it is said that it was some kind of old tradition way before this period, and then the person was led outside the walled city. Mostly, the life of the condemned was then taken in the south, in front, outside of the city. But the Burggraf was also signed help. As his deputy, the so-called Greve, so the sub-count, the sub-Burggraf, was responsible. And who appointed the Greve, the sub-count, the sub-Burggraf? Well, he was appointed by the Burggraf itself, and he was usually a free citizen of the city and, unlike the Burggraf, did not come from the higher nobility. Now, it was not only these few men who enforced the will of the archbishop. The archbishop drew on his pool of ministerial personnel. 
These do many administrative tasks in the city, such as the administration of a homestead, the supervision of the exercise of a certain right in the city, such as during a market. From the 11th century, ministerials were, as listed before, unfree men. But why did the archbishop rely on unfree persons for such important tasks, and not on the nobles who were subject to him in his domain? Do you remember how the Etonians, who were the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire between 919 and 1024, relied on bishops and abbots to establish their rule? Similar reasons also move bishops in their secular rule assurance. In terms of legal status, an unfree was much more closely bound to his lord, in this case to the Archbishop of Cologne. A nobleman had the right of feud, could run to the emperor or defend himself militarily with his troops in the worst case. With these means, a nobleman could also permanently annex properties and estates of the archbishop and try to um, make it an inheritance for his uh, sons and daughters. An unfree was legally not even remotely able to do so. And in the last episode, you learned what the archbishops of that time were concerned about. They wanted to expand and consolidate their own territory. Keyword, territorialization. For the reasons mentioned above, unfree servants were ideal for this, and not nobles. Especially Archbishop Frederick I had relied mainly on ministerials in his military conflict with Emperor Henry V in order to have enough fighters. Ministerials could therefore be both administrators or also soldiers, or both at the same time. Important for you to note, the ministerials, the Burggraf, the Greve, and also the similarly treated city bailiff that we will talk about in just a few seconds, are offices that are directly subordinate to the Archbishop of Cologne. Therefore, in the case of direct disputes between the Archbishop and the rich inhabitants of the city about the exercise of power in the city, you can imagine on whose side these office holders were usually. These offices served to exercise and preserve the Archbishop's rule in the city. The city bailiff is still hard for me to grasp. I probably have to do more research and reading here. We have already met him. It was the city bailiff who acted quite unsuccessfully in the first phase of the uprising against Anno II in 1074. He and his men-at-arms had failed to disperse the angry young crowd from the merchant and tradesman class. On the contrary, the city bailiff and his men had gotten a bloody nose and had to retreat. The then incumbent had thus failed to nip the uprising in the butt, and it came to the further bloody events which ended in a temporary flight of the Archbishop of Cologne in 1074. The city bailiff was also appointed directly by the Archbishop and served in this office throughout his life. He also served as a judge within the city especially about things that did not entail such severe punishments like, like being discussed in the high court, like disputes over money, for example. If the Burggraf was not in the city as well, next to the archbishop, he could also, so the city bailiff, also preside over the high court as a judge, but even then only. Nevertheless, the city bailiff does not seem to have been in the city very often. 
as the head of the court of the Archbishop of Cologne, the city bailiff usually traveled with the Archbishop around the Archdiocese of Cologne and the secular domains of the Archbishopric of Cologne, and also on other trips to other places. Here the city bailiff is a good example of how even an unfree man could make it to wealth and power, for the city bailiff was always a ministerial, a servant of the archbishop, and thus, like all ministerials at that time, unfree. This distinguished him from the Burggraf, who always came from the higher nobility and was not unfree at all, not in the slightest. The office of the Cologne city bailiff also became hereditary in the course of the 12th century and remained in the possession of a single family until the 14th century. There was also a deputy for the city bailiff, if that's not already confusing enough, the deputy of the city bailiff. Just like the Greve, the deputy of the city bailiff, the respective office holder, came from the citizens of Cologne and possessed citizenship, the full citizenship. This was just a small section, but I would like to make a little break because now we go into another kind of how Cologne was organized in the High Middle Ages. Let's get to that after a very short break. We need to talk about the topic of parish churches, something we've never really done in the entire course of the podcast. Cologne should be really exceptional as far as the system of parish churches is concerned. This is especially noticeable in the fact that from 1300 AD, there are not one or two parish churches in Cologne, but a whole of 19. One could now justify this by saying, yes, well, Cologne is the largest city of the empire, therefore it has a lot of parish churches, but that does not quite add up. Other large cities like Nuremberg or Augsburg in the late Middle Ages did not even have that many. Augsburg had only five parish churches, and Nuremberg, with its 40,000 inhabitants in the late Middle Ages and a population almost as large in, as Cologne, had only two parish churches. Why were there parish churches at all in Cologne? We already have many churches for the common people of the city in Cologne, right? Well, in a parish, a parish priest serves on behalf of the bishop for the pastoral care in his parish. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, three things make up a parish. A parish church, associated property or real estate, and a church population that lives in this area that is organized and administered by this parish. Very well, you might say, that makes sense, but there were numerous monastery churches for that, like St. Gerion, St. Ursula, Oh, wow. And you know all the other churches. It's late at Saturday, it's late Saturday night here for me, and I've been up very long already. Well, let's continue. These, these monastery churches, sorry, these monastery churches could take over the job, couldn't they? And now they were also building parish churches as well in Cologne next to those monastery churches, a whole 19 of them? Why? Well, let's start from the very beginning. We can assume that the Bishop of Cologne, yes, I'm just talking about the Bishop, not the Archbishop. So the Bishop, and we're talking about the years before around 800. So the Bishop of Cologne and his Episcopal Church 
a building that came before the old cathedral, were once responsible for the pastoral care of the entire city area, but also for the diocese, in general the, the bishopric. However, in the course of time, after the early Middle Ages moved on more and more into the High Middle Ages, coming with all the side effects of more population and a bigger city area, it became more and more difficult to do this all by just one church alone and one bishop alone. Do you still remember Archbishop Gunther from the 9th century? Through his document, this property document from the year 866 that documented the transfer of rights and possessions, we know at all which monastery churches in Cologne and elsewhere already existed. In exactly this document, he also released the monastery churches in Bonn and Xanten, for example, into de facto independence as far as parish care was concerned, property rights and autonomy. Because Bonn and Xanten nowadays are not very far away. You can drive there with your car, but back then it was quite far away for a medieval person. Of course, this is all very simplified. In the late early Middle Ages, so around 800 and 900, we are in a state where the bishop's church cannot do the job alone anymore. So more and more the numerous monasteries in the Archbishopric of Cologne step in and take over the pastoral care. But then, from the 10th and 11th century, a new next step, a new development began. Also very slowly, not in all places at the same time, the monasteries that stepped up to support the bishop's church and the bishop itself for administering the parishes withdrew now also more and more from direct parish pastoral care. So we're discussing a centuries-long process which reached the point here in the 12th century that new parish churches were built and formed everywhere felt in the cityscape because firstly the Bishop's church went off that job, and now the monastery churches also do that in many places. As a modern historian that I am, I'm going to go out on a limb here and put forward some thesis. If they are completely stupid, then write me and correct me. I'm serious, but as I said, I see the following. For me, the city's monasteries want to return to more austere monastic life and withdraw from the daily lives of ordinary people and of the, the town itself. On the other hand, there is an increased need for more pastoral care among the church folk who gather regularly for worship. This period marks a phase in which ordinary people, so the rest of the 95% of the people, develop an explicit popular piety. People go more and more on pilgrimages. They also want more relics in their churches so that they protect them. It's really a time where there is a popular piety coming from below, not from the top, not from the church itself, but from the grounds of the people that wanted to do more religious acts. Not only once every few weeks or even months a service should take place in a church, as it was often the case until then in a parish. No, please, as often as possible, I want to go to heaven so badly, please take care of me. That was the thinking of that time by the ordinary people. The priest 
Oh, then the parish priest should also please know Latin well, not only be able to recite everything by heart or even worse wrongly because, yes, I want to go to heaven and I need a good man on the job. And please also the priest must live celibate, so that he, the priest, can devote himself completely to his parish and not be distracted by raising children or dealing with his wife. Two conflicting interests then are happening here at the same time. Ordinary folk want more contact with the church, more spirituality, but the monasteries, on the other hand, want less contact with the church people, I mean the ordinary people that want to attend service. The high number of parish churches can therefore probably be explained by the fact that they were built directly in the immediate vicinity or sometimes directly attached next to the monasteries, because people were used to go to the monastery church before that for their parish uh, services. But that now ended, so let's build a parish church right next to it. That was the thinking. My personal opinion, I don't have the proof for it. Sometimes, however, parish churches seem to have been built directly by a civic initiative, just like Klein St. Martin in German or Little St. Martin near the Heumarkt Square. Here it is assumed, although not definitely certain, that it was the rich merchants of the area who lived here who had a parish church built here because, as I said, they wanted more and better service. A topic we will return to another time, but for now, let's continue. I always like to talk about the city of Cologne as an entire political entity. You know, that's the city with its wall, city area and its total population. But the question that is justified here is, institutionally speaking, did the city of Cologne actually exist as a corporate body? This is where it gets really complicated. Because there's actually very little that can claim to speak for the entire city. On the one hand, of course, there is the archbishop. Yes, he speaks for the whole city. He is seen as the city ruler, logically. But he has to share his power more and more with the wealthy city elite. Then there was the high court, which was subordinate to the archbishop, yes, but which met only three times a year, together with the Burggraf and the city bailiff, and the deputies and ministerials. But that was it for now. Otherwise, the city was organized in an extremely decentralized manner. Every day, local political life took place in the so-called Sondergemeinden. What are Sondergemeinden? Sondergemeinden, and don't worry, I will get you an English word for that very soon, are quasi-wards of the city, which for the first time were oriented in the geographical extent to the respective parishes. Many wards and parishes in Cologne, especially those within the still existing Roman city wall area, are congruent. This makes sense from the logic of the time of the people. At that time, as well as well into the 20th century, there was a parish obligation. That is, you could only receive certain types of pastoral care in the parish in whose area you lived. Of course, this was all due to the power politics and reasons within the church. It is unthinkable that someone from one's own parish would marry in a neighboring parish. 
that would mean having to accept fewer fees for weddings or baptisms. Thus, throughout their lives in their parish, people gather in their parish church for regular services and processions for baptisms and funerals. The awareness of the people who lived in their respective parishes and thus found identification should therefore not be underestimated. The archbishop or the Burggraf, let alone the high court, the few urban elements of Cologne at the time, the normal person hardly got to see during his lifetime or her lifetime. Maybe you saw him, the archbishop, from a distance if you happened to walk by past the cathedral on a court day. But how many times does that happen? That one is thus in that time rather shaped by that which he sees before his direct house door than that which takes place somewhere else in some part of the city, the cathedral or palace or shielded court, is therefore obvious. So it is only logical that the civic and communal developments along these realities of life in the parishes and the wards have also emerged from here. Thus, during this time, people often call themselves not firstly a citizen of Cologne, but a citizen of the parish of St. Martin. I'm a citizen of St. Martin. That's a parish church in the Middle Ages for people who live near today's Heumarkt Square. You should not confuse these Cologne wards with the word and value of a contemporary urban district or neighborhood. Wards were independent districts of their own and could be completely different from directly adjacent wards, especially from a legal point of view. They formed quasi-separate areas with their own specifications, institutions and courts within the city area. Even though the wards were mostly congruent with the parish districts, both institutions, the parish and the ward, were strictly separated from each other. The parish priest took care of the pastoral care. The ward, in turn, although named after its parish church most of the time, regulated secular matters such as the lower court jurisdiction in the area. This included civil cases um, like reprimands and voluntary court proceedings when two parties had everyday disputes within this ward, like he kicked over my fence or something like that. This decentralized structure continued to shape Cologne for a long time. Even the city council, which entered the city's political stage as a citywide institution in the course of the 13th century, not earlier, struggled for a long time to maintain the power of the individual wards and try to push it back and to take over this power. It was a long process. Within the area of the former Roman city, there were five wards already. Four of them were named after respective parish churches like St. Columba. The fifth ward was named after St. Apostles, which was a monastery church still, but was endowed still with additional parish rights. So here we have an example that a monastery still does that during the parish uh, services. Too complicated? Yes, it is. Let us therefore leave it that. The former suburbs of Niederich and Oversburg that were integrated into the city in 1106 formed their own ward, but ignored the existing parish boundaries that they already had before. How were the wards organized? 
as the head of each ward were two masters. Important, listen carefully. These are not the masters slash mayors of the city of Cologne, but only the masters of their respective ward. So like, for example, the mayors or slash masters of the ward of St. Martin. Or St. Columba. These ward masters presided over the ward for one year. When the term of office was over, these two ward masters were replaced by a new pair and themselves became part of the council of officials in their ward. This body acted as judges in this ward. Here in the 12th century, these council of officials in the, in the wards are already organized like a real cooperative. Here in the 12th century, these council of officials in the wards are already organized like a real fraternity among themselves. And this is what happened in all wards within the city. Admittedly, a simultaneously development in all parts of the city cannot be seen here. Some wards took shape and scope earlier, some later. At the time of the mid 12th century, there were already nine wards within the city. If you lived near Neumarkt, you were in the ward of St. Apostles. If you lived near today's Hohestraße, then St. Columba was your parish church and you lived also in the ward that was named like St. Columba. Every ward has a kind of central meeting place, or rather a meeting house, the so-called Geburhaus, meaning ward house. We will come back to this ward house in a moment. What certainly drove the development of the wards were the events of the years 1106 and 1114 we already talked about, when Henry V, twice an external enemy, attacked the city. To repel an imperial army, that required organization and clout within a municipality. Where do we deploy which people, when and how, to defend the wall? Who brings provisions, water and firewood to the wall? This is necessary to be militarily successful in the city defense, especially against the imperial army. Unfortunately, the exact military command structure in this period is in the dark. However, when an attack was made on the city from the outside, which happened many times in the 12th century, like in 1106 and 1114, the storm bells were rung at the cathedral and could be heard throughout the city. All men liable to military service had to arm themselves immediately and then assemble at once at the ward house of their ward. By the way, who was liable to military service? That is a topic for another episode. From there, the respective defense was coordinated to assign sections of the wall. This will have been successfully done by the wards for the 12th century. After all, Henry V did not succeed in conquering or taking the city both times. And also further attacks on the city in the century would not be successful, as well as all further attacks until the year 1794. In peacetime, the wards also organized patrolling of the wall and towers in their respective assigned sections of the wall. Here too, all the men liable to armed service were in charge. For the typical medieval city guard, as we know them from movies and series or even PC games like in Elder Scrolls, that did not exist at all. It was the citizens of the city who had to do this from time to time. Of course, not all the time, but every now and then it was your turn to do your duty to defend the city in peace times. 
The armament for that was also provided by the citizens themselves. You had to have enough money, and you had to prove that you had enough money for your arms. The normal citizens had breastplates and a helmet of iron. As a weapon, usually they used a spear. Witcher citizens could equip themselves with battle horses, knights' armor, including shield, sword, lance, and whatever else the budget provided. One should therefore really not underestimate the wards. Also, economically, they had something to offer, so that anyone who could afford to be elected by the ward community tried to become ward masters there and thus eventually get into the college of full officials of his own ward, because wards sometimes bought properties collectively with their assets, which they leased to merchants or gave for rent. The resulting profits were, of course, distributed within the governing bodies, so the collegiate of full officials of the wards. What you should take away from all the details here, that are way too many, I know, I speak for myself as well. For the 12th century, what was relevant for the individual was what was happening locally in his or her own ward and parish. What happened in the neighboring ward was of less interest, and what happened at Colón Cathedral, even less. But from the ward, some things become clear. In the formation of these wards, the inhabitants of Cologne expressed their will to join together politically, the normal people, not some archbishop or nobles, first locally in their respective neighborhoods, in the wards, on the spot, but also soon the thought would come, shouldn't all wards work together? Now and then, for the greater good, in 1106, this had already been done for a short while, in 1114 likewise, and again in 1119 as well. Nevertheless, the unification into a unified civic municipality was far from being achieved here in the 12th century. The way there would remain exciting, believe me. How did the work of the ward manifests itself in the everyday life of people. One example was the Shrine Books. Let's take a look at this after a short break. We had already discussed the Shrine Books in passing in an earlier episode. Shrine because these books were stored in boxes or chests, which were called shrines at that time. The respective chest was located in the respective ward in the ward house. You see also here the ward took care of that business. And what was that business? What was recorded in these shrine books? Mainly legal transactions. Who bought or sold a house? Rental agreements leases, marriage contracts, gifts, and generally everything that was supposed to regulate everyday life between people in some way was recorded. But that does not mean that everything was or had to be recorded in here. There was no obligation to record a legal transaction in a shrine book. And if you want to do so, of course, you had to pay some fees to your ward. But still, it was a way to make sure that your business deal was in a good place, in a safe place, where nobody could do suspicious things with it. We'll come to that later. 
But well, what's the big deal? People recording legal transactions. So what? No big deal. But consider who had produced written documents up to now. Correct. Kings, emperors, and above all, the high clergy. The latter in particular, since only these were powerful most of the times of reading and writing. But this changed now in the 12th century. Also, now normal people start to learn to read and write. Not all of them, it's still a small percentage, mostly even traders and people who relied on writing and reading for their profession. But here in these rhyme books, it is not written about only ordinary people, but mainly by ordinary people. Until then, we had learned about the normal people of Cologne, mainly through chronicles or historical sources or reports of priests or monks or people who were really close to the royal court or the archbishop's court. Remember how low Lampert of Hersfeld in his chronicle consistently badmouthed the Cologne insurgents in 1074. As a member of the clergy, Lampert was precisely on the side of Archbishop Anna II and did not portray the Cologne uprising in a good light. Therefore, these shrine books, quasi kind of high medieval property re register, are clear enrichment for the research of Cologne's city history. It gives an insight, albeit not a complete one, as far the opposite, but it gives little insight into the non-clerical, non-aristocratic world of everyday life at the time. It was also such a step forward for the everyday life of the people back then. Until well into this period, contracts were often concluded with witnesses and not written down. If you now had a dispute with your contractual partner because he or she no longer kept to the agreements, but your witnesses from the conclusion of the contract at the time were dead, missing or simply no longer in the vicinity, then uh, you had already lost. Now, with these shrine books, you could simply go together to the wardhouse, have the respective entry in the shrine book shown to everyone and thus get your right, completely without the necessity of still living witnesses. Progress. It is also interesting here that the establishment of these shrine books in Cologne were very different from the chronology in comparison. For as already indicated, each ward operated its own shrine book. The first shrine books appeared around 1135 in the ward of St. Lawrence, Little St. Martin and in the suburb of Niederich, which was the northern suburb incorporated in 1106. The ward of St. Lawrence included, among other things, an area which included the Jewish quarter, areas east of today's Hohestraße, the north-south main road, and the site of today's town hall. The ward of Little St. Martin largely encompassed the immediate vicinity of Heumarkt Square. In the case of the other wards, which later totaled 11 at this time, in the 12th century, the establishment of shrine books does not begin until later. From some wards, the shrine books for the 12th century are unfortunately not handed down at all, or perhaps here the recordings of such also begin much later. What we have early historical evidence of, however, is the shrine book for the Jewish community. This can be dated back for the first time around the year 1130. The special thing about the Jewish shrine book was the following. 
It was not kept in a synagogue in the middle of the Jewish quarter in a chest, but in the Christian parish church of St. Lawrence, which was in the immediate vicinity of the medieval Jewish quarter, quasi on the other side of the street of today's Untergoldschmied. It is also thanks to these shrine books that we know, in addition to archaeological findings and historical documents, that Jews settled especially here in the parish of St. Lawrence, precisely there where the Praetorium, the Roman governor's palace, had once stood. If you have any knowledge about Cologne's medieval history, you will notice that I left out a big institution of that time in the 12th century. Those are the Schäffen, or the Schäffen Collegium even. But who were the Schäffen? The simple answer would be that they attended court as legal advisors and assist, assisted in reaching a verdict. The reality and further development of the Schäffen is of course much more complicated. Let's try to break this down. The Schäffen, or let's call them magistrates. I know in a previous episode I called them, I think, judges or jurors. I don't think that's a really good term anymore after my research, so I will stick to magistrates now. The Schäffen, so the magistrates, must have existed at least since the existence of the High Court in Carolingian Frankish times. Throughout the Frankish period in the 9th century, it was already customary for magistrates to serve as assessors for the presiding judge. Thus, these magistrates serving as lay judges were already a fixed group of men at court hearings in the time of the Carolingians. In times when legal texts were not usually written down, the magistrates served as quasi-walking Wikipedia and encyclopedia in this field. They were consulted by the respective judge. They knew about the local law and also about past judgments because also that was not written down. The magistrates passed on their knowledge orally to each other as well as to their successors in office. In 1103, we know of a total of 12 magistrates in Cologne. Six of them were archbishop's ministerials. This means that they were unfree servants of the archbishop. The other six were probably wealthy citizens of the city of Cologne, for one had to be able to afford such an office. From the middle of the 12th century, the number of magistrates increased to 25. Together, all the magistrates formed the Schäffenkollegium, so in English, let's call it the Council of Magistrates. How did one become a magistrate? That was decided by the magistrates themselves, and that is really special. They decided that. First of all, they, the magistrates, could choose who would become a candidate for becoming a magistrate later on. This circle of candidates were the so-called Schäffenbrüder. If I would translate it directly, it would mean magistrate brothers, but that's not a good translation for that, so I would call them waiting magistrates. Only from this circle of waiting magistrates, new real magistrates could be appointed. The succession in their committee was therefore determined by the magistrates themselves. It is true that some families held on to their members 
in this body quite well over generations. Nevertheless, there was a great rotation of names and families in the Council of Magistrates. It can be assumed that within the wealthy elite of Cologne, there was a very energetic fight for the seats in the Council of Magistrates, haggling and, let's say it, also corruption was used for it. But once the Council of Magistrates had agreed on who they wanted to accept into their midst as their new magistrate, the last hurdle was the Burggraf or the Archbishop. Both made sure that the newly elected magistrate was at least 24 years old, was loyal, was honorable, that he was born into a married couple and was mentally and physically capable to do the job. If these criteria were met, the Burggraf or sometimes even the Archbishop administered the oath of office. This made the whole thing then official and a new magistrate was introduced. The expansion from 6 to 25 magistrates in the first half of the 12th century alone shows that a powerful institution was formed here. In addition to the 25 active magistrates, there were many more candidates, those aspirants who hoped to one day to belong to the 25-member body themselves. Sometimes, however, there were also times when there were only 23 or even 28 magistrates in the Council of Magistrates. So this was not always taken very strictly. I don't want to accuse anyone of anything bad here, but this lets assume that this committee was not completely free from corruption. In later times, this was to blossom when even women and clergymen were to be among the candidates for becoming a magistrate. They were not even entitled to be included in it. This expansion of the number of seats in the Council of Magistrates naturally provided an opportunity for Cologne's upwardly mobile wealthy citizens to make their voices heard and gain power. At the head of this body, as you might imagine, very similar to the wards, there were also two masters among the Council of Magistrates. These were elected for one year and presided over the Council of Magistrates as Schaffenmeister, just like the masters in the wards. This is a really nice fun fact. If you were elected as a magistrate master, you had to celebrate the inauguration with everybody. In other words, you had to invite the Burggraf, the town bailiff and, other, and the other fellow magistrates to a really good multi-course meal. At the end of the one-year term of office, these masters of the Council of Magistrates were admitted to the College of Eldermen. So it's now even more complicated. Within this 25-member body of Council of Magistrates, there was also within that a College of Eldermen. This was once again a separate, higher-ranking grouping among the magistrates. Too complicated? Yes. How do you think I felt during this while, while I was re researching? This is the reason why I'm doing this on a Saturday night, 24 hours up until this episode has to be released. So again, for you to write down, there are first six and then even 25 magistrates who form the Council of Magistrates. Within this council, there is again a College of Eldermen, which consists of the people who had already exercised the office as masters in the Council of Magistrates for one year. If one wants to become a magistrate, 
one had to have good contacts in this body already, for it was the council themselves who decided who they would accept into their circle of candidates as the Schaffenbrüder or the waiting magistrates of the Council of Magistrates. It's getting too complicated and too late, I know. And from this group of candidates, the magistrates also elected new members to their council, which was then sealed with the taking of the oath of office before the Burggraf or the Archbishop. Here it is particularly difficult to present the structures and tasks of this body, for the magistrates underwent a strong change in the course of the 12th century. At first, they were really only thought of assistance in finding justice at court, but they increasingly took on administrative tasks in the city. This council, which was actually created primarily as an instrument to secure the archbishop's rule in the city, also continued to develop within the city. But the magistrates among themselves understood themselves more and more also as a brotherhood and community, so they gained their own identity apart from the archbishop. Similarly, interconnected and organized in a cooperative fraternity manner as with the structures in the wards. The character of the office was then lost in the course of time. A magistrate was entitled to a share of revenues that they gained as a council through their duties as legal advisors and administrators. The income of the magistrates came from various sources. Part of it was fees paid by the parties in court proceedings. The magistrates received a certain sum for each court case in which they participated. Another part of the income came from their participation in administrative tasks. All these offices and institutions mentioned here are not always as clearly demarked as one might think. In the Council of the Magistrates are unfree ministerials who are loyal to the archbishop but also inhabitants of Cologne from the economic elite who now and then like to have a different opinion than the city ruler wanted. And so, in the 12th century, the Council of Magistrates developed into a powerful municipal body, and it did so for the entire city area. It was a body that moved between the judiciary and the executive. I hope I pronounced that word correctly. I don't have the time to look it up anymore. <laughs> It's too late at night, sorry. The Council of Magistrates, which was preparing to take on more administrative tasks in the city, claimed to represent not only the will of the city ruler, but also that of the entire city community and its inhabitants. Thus, as early as 1140, the magistrates, as the elite within the city population, called themselves senatores, so senators, in reference to the senators in ancient Rome, who also represented the elite among the citizens of the Eternal City. The Council of Magistrates was not even something like the later city council, which first appeared on the scene only in the 13th century. The Council of Magistrates developed from a body that was supposed to assist at court hearings into a powerful political body of the municipality. Until the establishment of the city council in the late Middle Ages, the magistrates could well and truly claim to be the only citywide authority with uh, participation by normal citizens. Of course, this also brought them into conflict with the self-confident wards of the city from time to time. Whew. Let's take a last short break. 
So, who's had a smoking now after all this? And someone wants to tell me that the Middle Ages were a chaotic, even anarchistic time. The fairy tale of the medieval city where everyone simply made a mess somewhere or could do whatever they wanted is simply not true. Medieval cities, Cologne included, of course, were extremely versatile and tightly organized. Which is logical, if people want to live together in a confined space and get along with each other, then rules are needed and institutions that enforce and monitor compliance with these rules. But what I have told you here is only the tip of the iceberg. What about the cathedral chapter, the numerous brotherhoods, the individual rich families in the city were in the council of magistrates? the elitist group that comes from those very circles of the economic elite and is taking more and more political power to itself, even though it is not even an official authority of the city. We haven't talked about them at all in this episode. The Richardseche, they are called in their time. What about this city seal? The so-called House of the Citizens, which later became the town hall that still exists today. Guilds, gaffs, the power of the individual monasteries. The trade in relics, which had a new boom since the expansion of the city in 1106. What is it about? Who is allowed to use the town seal and how? What is so special about the city seal at all? These are all topics that would and should belong in such an episode. But we have talked about enough for this time. Let's continue at this point another time. But not directly next time. I'd like to have some action in the next episode. In the year 1133, the people of Cologne show once again that it is they alone who decide whom they want to tolerate in their walled city. They will really ruin the Empress Christmas, who is on a visit in the city at that time. But I will not say more about this for the time being, and five years later, of course, stress with the Archbishop of Cologne followed once again once again, the city lord will move against his own city with an army. Or perhaps you also take a look at England and talk about Henry II and what he has to do with Cologne at all. Everything I have told you here I owe to the work of many previous historians. The blocks of topics covered here are so complex that I am extremely grateful that others before me have already unraveled all of this. As a modern historian, reading into these medieval topics are as exciting as they are challenging for me. First, there's Manfred Groten, who was a professor at the University of Bonn until 2015. As a student there, I was also there for five years until his retirement in 2015. I took a look at my university records, but I never had a lecture or seminar with him. But at least I had events with staff members of his, uh, where, where he worked at. Regardless, I have benefited enormously from his scholarly contributions. The German city in the Middle Ages already served me as an enormous help in the preparation of this podcast. He, in particular, his essays on the Richardseche, the rich citizens of Cologne, and the shrine books were also enormously helpful. And of course, how could it be otherwise, the city history volume of the Grieben Verlag, which was compiled by by Mr. Stehkemper and Mr. Dietmar on the High Middle Ages in Cologne was a great help to me as always. Another support was offered to me by Dieter Strauch, who researched the history of the Cologne High Court. In the end, I need to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this really complicated episode, but it had to be done. 
It means so much to me. Thank you also to my Patreons. And thank you this time for your tips to Claudia, Jens Uwe, Simon, Maximilian and Andre. So recommend me further if you're on Spotify, rate this podcast with pleasure and until next time, auf Wiedersehen.